So the uh, passage uh, to start with is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. You can follow it in your Bibles, or if you want bigger print, it's in the handout, in bigger print for that section. I'll give you a moment to get there. So Genesis chapter 3, from verse 1. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Uh, the second reading comes from Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 1. Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you wrote. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance.
Well, brothers and sisters, let's begin. In, let's, let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for who you are, for your grace, uh, for your compassion. We thank you that we have this opportunity to uh, come together. We thank you just for the, uh, the gracious way that you continue to draw us to you and to draw us together. We do pray now that you would give us uh, the grace to hear, to listen, uh, to uh, ourselves live uh, and follow and trust in your goodness and your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jaden was feeling shaken. Uh, there in front of him was a long letter from Alex. He printed it out to make sense of it. Uh, the week before, Jaden had actually built up the courage to have a, a tough but necessary conversation with Alex. And in the conversation, he shared how much Alex's behaviour had hurt him over the last three years. Um, Alex was supposed to be Jaden's mentor, and he thought his friend, but at first he felt he'd had a lot to learn from Alex. But he realised that actually over the years Alex hadn't been a great mentor. And worse than that, in, in various ways, in various situations, Alex had subtly undermined Jaden. Uh, Jaden had also discovered times uh, when Alex had inappropriately shared personal information about him. But a few weeks ago, um, Alex had asked Jaden to write an endorsement of his mentoring skills. And Jaden couldn't do it. So he plucked up the courage, despite the power imbalance, to talk with Alex and to tell him why. He expected Alex to be upset, but what he hadn't expected was this letter. And in the letter, Alex had written his own alternative version of what had happened over the last three years. And the letter told a story. And the stories went, it was gripping and heart-wrenching stuff. In Alex's version of the story, Alex was a misunderstood hero. In incident after incident, Alex detailed how much he felt and cared for Jaden over the years. Alex had sacrificed his time and energy for Jaden. He'd gone out of his way to help Jaden. Jaden obviously hadn't appreciated, but he said, that's okay, Alex said. He understood Jaden wasn't perfect. He was willing to forgive Jaden if he apologised. After all, that's what good mentors do. And to begin with, Jaden felt awful. How could he have been so mean? But a friend encouraged Jaden to reread the letter and, and check it against actual emails and text messages and other things, diary entries that Jaden had on record. And when he did that, Jaden realized that in event after event, Alex had made subtle changes to the truth. Things hadn't quite happened that way, or that way, or that way. And after going through it line by line, Jaden realised that the entire story that Alex had told was a lie. Now, granted, it wasn't a total fabrication. It referred all throughout to things that had happened. And on the surface, it seemed perfectly reasonable. It even mentioned one or two small things that Jaden realised he could have done better. But in the end, all the little changes to the details didn't add up. Alex's story, which was immensely powerful and emotionally gripping, just wasn't true. Jaden was relieved that he wasn't going crazy 
but he had no idea what to do. How could he continue in this situation? What was he supposed to do about the fact that Alex still had this informal but nevertheless quite real position of power over him? Now, the story I've just told is based on various real situations that I've uh, heard about or seen in different kinds of personal relationships between family members, um, friends, work colleagues, others. Just to remind us how important truth is in our own personal relationships. Uh, I know someone, for example, who grew up in a family where words were seldom used for truth. Um, in, in the family that I grew up, grew up in, words were used for therapy. That is, words were tools to soothe volatile emotions in the moment. And the soothing was called love, but it was a fickle love. It was nothing was sure, nothing was solid, nothing was stable. Promises could never be relied on, and that's had a profound impact on the children who grew up in that family. It's taken decades to undo the damage. Words are powerful. Words glue us together. We use words to reveal ourselves to one another, to care for one another, to make promises to one another. Words can be a power for good or for evil. That's why it's so terrible when words are treated cheaply, when, when truth is denied or neglected in our personal relationships. It can be devastating. But when we talk about truth and lies, who do we blame? Because I know my natural reaction is to lay the blame at the feet of others. You know, the, the liar is the label that describes them. You know, the politicians, they're liars. The greedy corporate bosses, uh, the corrupt ministers, the, the, the neighbours, the family members who've done something wrong to us, the people we disagree with, the manipulative media, China. <laughs> Obviously, they're bad. But you and I, we're on the side of truth, aren't we? But brothers and sisters, as I start, we need to own up to something. Truth is personal. I don't mean that truth's merely a matter of personal opinions. I mean that truth is something that, are, that operates at a profoundly personal level. Truth and lies aren't just out there. They're in here. They affect all of us. Truth problems permeate our day-to-day -day experience. They're encoded in their technology. They affect our businesses, our media, our schools, our churches, rears its head in tribalism and narcissism. They affect all of our relationships and lies are there in our very selves because we have a truth problem. And I know that I do, but I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible has vital answers to this problem. So the material I'm showing you today comes from this book. In, in each of the talks, I'm going to explore a few, few modern factors that make truth particularly challenging in our modern world. Most importantly, we're going to look at the Bible and we're going to see some important things that help us to navigate those challenges and talk about how they can apply to our own lives. It matters because deception is a reality in all of our lives in one form or another. It's something that we need to face up to. In the story that I just told, uh, Alex hurt Jaden, caused significant problems for the relationship by denying the truth. And when faced with clear instances of wrongdoing in his relationship with Jaden, he edited that history. He denied reality to make himself look good. Why have you done that? Well, I know it's a fictional story, but it's based on real life 
incidents. It, it's not as simple as saying that Alex was a cold, calculating, barefaced liar. After all, it's likely that Alex had even convinced himself of his own edited narrative. The problem was something more subtle, in many ways much worse for everyone. Deep down, Alex couldn't cope with reality. And the thing is, we all do the same thing in various ways. And true, we're not all sort of deeply manipulative like Alex, but all of us are affected by deception in some way. After all, haven't we all told lies? Haven't we all deceived ourselves at times? Haven't we all told stories to ourselves or others with subtle emphases and edits to make ourselves seem better? Haven't we all individually, as part of a group, made ourselves out to be kind of victims when actually we weren't really or denied consequences for our wrong actions or sought to cover our shameful past or shifted blame to others? Haven't we all made promises then failed to keep our word? with no real excuse other than our own convenience. And to my shame, I admit I've done those things various times in my life. Why do we do it? Well, so often, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, deep down in places we don't like to think about, we can't handle the truth. And I'm not saying this to make us wallow in guilt. I'm saying it to help us face reality, all of us in various ways, have a truth problem. We've caused issues in our relationships when our words haven't matched up with reality. For some people, the deception is actually very serious and serious measures need to be taken. But for others, the deception seems minor, just a normal part of our day-to-day -day lives, but it's everywhere and it matters. The truth is in trouble in our hearts. And in fact, right now in, in the history of the Western world and more broadly, there is a serious truth problem. There's all sorts of factors. There's political and technological and cultural philosophical factors to lose to the point where people say that we're living in a, a post-truth world. It's a clear and present danger. But as we approach God's word, we discover something else, actually, something far more timeless that helps us to get some perspective as we deal with these issues. The post-truth situation isn't something that's entirely unprecedented. It's not just a 21st century thing. In fact, according to the Bible, we've been living in a post-truth world for a very long time. If you look at um, Genesis chapter 3, that's the passage we had before, page 6, uh, there in, in your books or in your Bibles, the, um, we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 and, and you know, close to the start of the Bible. The Bible's opening chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, describe a world where truth reigns. That is, words match reality. In fact, reality matches God's words. God's words bring creation into existence. God speaks, and so it is. The shape of creation fits God's words. And God speaks words to human beings in Genesis 1 and 2. He commits his good world to their charge. He gives them good commands that correspond to the reality of the world he's made. But from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, truth suffers a terrible blow. From that point on, Genesis chapter 3, the story of humanity is full of dark and complex layers of deception. The beginning of Genesis chapter 3, a strangely sophisticated 
creature appears on the scene. It's a serpent. It's the skies of Satan. Satan's fundamental character is to lie. The serpent's first utterance to the woman is a lie masquerading as an innocent question. See, God had previously said they could eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, otherwise they would die. But the serpent's question just slightly misquotes God. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the shift. Now, now to be fair, technically, technically, it's not a lie. It's not technically lying. He's just asking a question. No harm in asking, but it's a trick question because it sows confusion, creates confusion, sows seeds of doubt. The woman's response corrects the serpent's lie, but not entirely. So she reaffirms what God had said, but she also adds a detail. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, that's technically not a lie either. You know, after all, couldn't you argue that touching the tree, that's the detail she added, that touching the tree is the same as eating from the tree? There's no harm in that, is there? But the added detail almost imperceptibly continues to spin the narrative. The, the words are no longer sound like a simple and good command from God. There's a hint of a, it's a slightly unreasonable demand from God. You know, don't touch it. No, but nothing you can pin down. Then the serpent becomes more obvious in his deception. He just outright denies God's words. He says, you will not certainly die. Then he backs up his lie by uh, imputing motives to God. He, he suggests God doesn't have humanity's good at heart. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, technically, this isn't completely wrong. It's actually sort of true. After all, in a sense, if the man and the woman eat the fruit, they, they will be knowing about, about good and evil. And indeed, they'll be, they'll be determining and defining moral reality and truth in that sense. They will be like God, but the statement's also profoundly untrue. The man and the woman, they're not God. They can never be like God in the sense of determining and, and, and you know, knowing good and evil in that sense. In fact, they're, they're all, in fact, they're already like God in another sense. They were made in his image and likeness. So the second statement is a twisted half-truth, sneaking deception in under a bewildering camouflage of seemingly true coverings. It's a cunningly despised conspiracy theory, actually. This is, this is his conspiracy theory. God doesn't really want what's best for you. God's hiding something from you. Rise up, sheeple, and take what's yours. So the subtle lie has a devastating effect on the woman and the man. It shakes their trust in God's goodness. In God's goodness. And as a result, their desires are changed. Despite what God said, the fruit now seems good to them. So in their unbelief and in their misdirected desires, they eat. And their eyes are opened. But that only leads to further shame and further lies. They mount a clumsy attempt at cover-up, literally, cover-up with fig leaves. They try to hide from God 
when God finds the man and questions him, what does the man do? Classic, plays the victim. Blames the woman. When that doesn't work, so blames God. When it doesn't work, the man attempts to shift the blame to the easiest target, which is the woman, with a bit of blame also placed on God. Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the woman, in turn, tries to blame the serpent, but God won't play their games. He cuts through the deception with clear words of judgment. God keeps his word. He brings to bear the consequences, death and judgment, that he previously made crystal clear. God is faithful to his word of judgment. So what do we have here? Spinning narratives, sowing confusion, playing the victim, denying consequences, questioning motives, smuggling half-truths, weaving conspiracy theories, breaking trust, covering shame, shifting blame. They're all features of the post-truth world and they're all there in Genesis chapter 3. And they keep resonating throughout the pages of the Bible. Uh, The next chapter of Genesis details more disbelief and cover-ups from the descendants of the man and the woman that get progressively worse as the story continues. Deception affects everyone. And even God's special people aren't immune. Abraham, out of fear, lies about his wife. Jacob, the deceiver from the beginning. Jacob's sons use lies to slaughter their tribal enemies. The leader of their tribal enemies is a man enslaved to his own desires who tries to legitimate sexual abuse. The rest of the Old Testament keeps reminding us how deception saturates the existence of us as humans. The prophet Isaiah highlights deception as a core feature of Israel's failure to bring justice to their nation and to the world. You read in Isaiah chapter 59, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Um, Isaiah there in that chapter of Isaiah, he's focusing especially on leaders. Uh, The lies on the lips of leaders are particularly bad because they've got particularly bad consequences, devastating consequences for everybody when leaders lie. But it's not just leaders. The prophet Jeremiah points out, let everyone beware of his neighbour, put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbour goes about as a slanderer. Uh, The Bible doesn't shy away from the post-truth reality of our world. In fact, the Bible's full of all these terrible portrayals of human deception. And all all the problems that people can identify about our world, our post-truth world, really it's there in the Bible in one form or another. But the Bible just doesn't leave us with terrible stories. What the Bible does is it affirms that at the heart of our truth problem lies something even more serious. It's a failure to acknowledge God himself. Jeremiah goes on to say, in that passage I just quoted, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. The post-truth reality of our world, it's not just a human problem, it's a God problem. The issue is sin. 
that willful failure to trust and follow God, the world's good creator and ruler. So it's common to, um, to talk about the loss of truth in the 21st century Western world. Um, and it's really interesting because you know, when I, 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 I've got quite a few friends um, from, who are not Christian, um, a friend of mine who's actually a journalist, worked for the ABC and worked in Canberra, she was the head of the Canberra office. She uh, went, went to school with me. I was talking to her about this book about truth. And she was saying, yes, it's really good because there's so many lies in our world. You know, and what you need to do is to talk about, we're living in a post-truth world. We've lost truth. And she was talking about, she, yeah, she was working amongst politicians. <laughs> but it's not so popular to suggest that this loss of truth might have something to do with our failure to acknowledge God. But when we realise that denying God is at the heart of the problem, we can actually see that there's also hope for an answer, for a solution. Because the God of the Bible is a God of truth. I don't do all this, this all the time in talks, but I am going to teach you two Hebrew words. I want you to repeat them after me. I'm going to do a slightly Hittite Hebrew lesson here. Um, so in the Old Testament, God's character is often described using two words in parallel. Um, so in Hebrew, language of the most of the Old Testament, the words are, here they are, repeat after me, chesed, yeah, very good, and emet. Yeah, so chesed and emet. Okay, there you go, <laughs> a couple of words. Okay, chesed is strong commitment, loyalty, love, chesed. It's often translated as steadfast love in, in English or just love. Um, emet involves truth, which is actually reliability, trustworthiness, stability. It's often translated as faithfulness in English. The fact that those two words appear together tells us something important about God. God is both loving and true. Those two characteristics exist together in God. See, God is not just a God of cold, abstract truth who doesn't care about people. At the same time, God is not just a God of fluffy, sentimental love who forgets his promises and breaks his word. He's both. He's both loving and truthful. He's both committed and reliable. He's committed to his people and faithful to his word. So a key example is Exodus chapter 34. Just the other passage that we had is there on page 8. Just before this part of the story, the nation of Israel has been seriously unfaithful to God. Even though God has rescued them from slavery, made them his people, given them his good commands, the Israelites have given up trusting God and his word. They, they've created a false image. They've worshipped it. And Aaron, the leader of the people at the time, has deceptively tried to shift blame. If you want to read Exodus chapter 32, you actually discover Aaron you know, making up stories, sort of, but sort of not, and blaming other people. Moses has pleaded with God to stay committed to his people, Exodus 33, and then God reveals his name to Moses, showing him something profound about his character that undergirds all his interactions with Israel. This is his name, verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. 
He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, here it is, abounding in chesed and emet, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's God's character. God is abounding in chesed and emet. God is committed to his people and true to his word. And they're not opposite ideas. They're two sides of the same coin. God has committed himself to Israel, so he will follow through. He will keep his word. He will show mercy. At the same time, God's also promised that he will judge sin. He'll be true to his word of judgment. And at this point, God doesn't specify exactly how mercy and judgment can work together. We'll see that in Jesus ultimately. I just gave that away that's in the next door. But the main point is clear. God's faithful and true, despite the unfaithfulness and deceit of his people. And in that way, God's different from us. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own chesed, but a faithful and emet man who can find. The combination of chesed and emet, of faith, of love and truth, is used to describe God in lots of parts of the Bible. And it's often the cause of joy and praise and thanksgiving. Uh, Psalm 57, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love, your chesed, is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness, your emet, to the clouds. And in our post-truth world, the fact that God is true is a powerful source of confidence and faith and hope for us. That can be seen in lots of ways. The fact that God is true gives us confidence that truth is possible for us. God's faithful character underwrites his creation. He created through his faithful word, Psalm 33. You can expect that the world he created is, is reliable, coherent. We can expect, too, that our own words, as, as weak and limited as they are, can still, still express reality and truth. We're not just playing endless language games with one another, just using words that, that don't have a, a solid meaning. That understanding of God's character, in fact, gave confidence to many of the early scientists that our world was indeed rational and understandable despite the unreality of human intuition. So you think of the, the scientific work of uh, Johannes Kepler, who discovered the laws of planetary motion. Uh, that uh, was very important for him, God's faithfulness, and uh, not trusting human intuition uh, was a big part of his scientific work. The fact that God's true also gives us hope that justice will prevail, that God promises, you see, to be true to his word of judgment. It says in Proverbs chapter 19, verses 5 and 9, 
A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. And that's important for us. God will not let lies continue forever. You know, when when you might think that liars are gaslighting their way to security and everyone seems to believe them, we can be confident that they won't have the final word. God has the final word. God will bring it to light in the end. Deception is often mentioned in the Bible as a grave sin for which God will call people to account. And as I mentioned, like in Isaiah, it's especially true uh, when it comes to the lies of leaders. But, of course, when I talk about judgment, judgment is, is, is a source of hope for us if we are people who are being lied against. But at the same time, of course, judgment is a problem for us, isn't it? Because all of us in some ways are guilty of lies in one form or another. All of us will be called to account. And that's also why it's so comforting to know that God will be faithful to his promises to rescue those who trust him and turn to him for forgiveness. In the Old Testament, kings, prophets, poets keep looking forward to a time when the God of truth will keep his promises to forgive and rescue. And since God is true, the response God calls for from his people is twofold, to trust and to be truthful. So to to trust, what's to trust? To trust actually means to believe God's truth, to believe God's faithfulness, to believe that he will be faithful to his promises. Trust and truth go together, you know, even comes through in in kind of the, the English word. And even though God's ancient people, Israel, often failed in this area, there are foundational examples of that kind of trusting attitude. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. In the face of imminent judgment on Israel, God assures the prophet Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by his faith, by by his trust. And also to be truthful means to follow God's truthfulness and faithfulness in our lives and relationships. So the prophet Zechariah in chapter 8 looks forward to a time when David's city, Jerusalem, will be called the faithful city. Uh, Literally, literally it's uh, he's looking forward to the time when Jerusalem will be called the city of Emmet, the city of truth. And he calls on God pe- God's people to speak Emmet to one another, to speak the truth to one another, and so bring justice and peace. And it's a future vision of a trusting and truthful people. But it's not simply a vision for the nation of Israel. It's a hope for all the nations of the world. Zechariah goes on to say, this is for all nations. In the post-truth world, the Old Testament is full of truth and promise. And many of those promises are concentrated in the hope for a faithful human leader, a just ruler, a king from the line of David. Isaiah chapter 16, we read, a throne will be established in chesed, in steadfast love. And on it will sit in Emmet in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The promise of a king, promises full of confidence and hope and joy. And in the New Testament, 
as we'll see very soon after morning tea. Those hopes for truth are answered in the person and actions of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for who you are, a God of steadfast love and of faithfulness. Father, we pray that we may see and look to you in the midst of our own lives and even in the midst of our own deception. Help us to trust and to be truthful. But Father, please fix our eyes on you and on your Son, Jesus Christ, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.